Hi, you're listening to Shabbat Replay on Contact High, a podcast from Mishkan, Chicago. We're releasing our sermons so that no matter where you were Friday, you can enjoy a piece of Shabbat today. It's really, really nice to be with all of you tonight. I will say it's pretty rude of the pandemic to still be happening right now because I would love to be with everyone in person, but it's on its own timeline and that's okay. So here we are. Um, And it, it is really nice to be with all of you. I walked to the lake this afternoon and the streets around it were just full of tulips blooming. And when I was planning my move, Um, This summer, I was really worried that I was going to miss out on that short window of tulips blooming everywhere, but it worked out. So it's a very springtime Shabbat for me tonight. This Shabbat is also very interesting liturgically speaking, which maybe is the most rabbinical thing I've ever said. Uh, But it's, it's interesting because we're reading not just one Torah portion, but two. It's a double Parsha. The Jewish year isn't long enough to fit them individually, which is wild because I feel like this year has been plenty long already. But again, everything on its own timeline. So this first Parsha, Akhari Mot, is the type of passage that most parents hope their kid doesn't have to read for their bar mitzvah. And the second one, Kiddoshim, is frequently quoted by religious school teachers across faiths. So that these two go hand in hand is actually pretty fun. These passages are all about boundaries and some pretty uncomfortable ones at that. We're talking about sex, blood, workplace violations, the stuff that makes you think these tribes must have been a real HR nightmare. It's worth noting that these are people in crisis, right? They're recent slaves and now refugees lost in a desert. Their leader, Moses, great guy, disappears for long periods of time to chat with God, and he's had to really earn his people's trust. So it makes sense that not too long after the death of Aaron's sons, we start to see some new rules and reforms emerge in Israelite society. Akharimot gets very specific about what not to do. Do not do what you did in Egypt. Do not drink blood. Do not sleep with anyone you're related to. Really had to write that one down. The laws get so specific that one starts to wonder if these banned practices were actually ongoing problems in the community. Last Shabbat morning service, during the discussion, another Mishkanite pointed out that throughout the Torah, a lot of the new rules are offered to the Israelites are written in the negative. And I apologize for not remembering who said it because it's a really interesting observation. As a former middle school teacher and camp counselor, I've been taught that it's best practice to frame rules in the positive, explaining what to do instead of what not to do. The idea is that this sets a clearer expectation and gets the desired behavior faster. For example, asking students to come line up is much more effective than just saying, don't wander in the hall. There are definitely times though where it's helpful to give rules in the negative, we've all witness that, typically when there's dangerous behavior that simply needs to be stopped. In that case, it's incredibly effective to tell someone what not to do. And as the Israelites are building their new society, it becomes very clear what practices they need to stop. Whatever lifestyles they were used to in Egypt, the grief of losing loved ones and health concerns in the desert must have brought to attention systems that were never really working for everyone in the first place. And that, to me, feels very familiar. 
This past year, we've all witnessed how our continuous tragedies illuminate inequities in healthcare, in education, in law enforcement. We've watched cracks grow from the foundations of American society, revealing long legacies of pain. Which of our behaviors needs to be urgently stopped? What actions do we as a community tolerate against our own neighbors? Our country only just decided this week that it is wrong for a white police officer to kneel on a black man's neck until he dies. Just this week, it has always been wrong. And yet in America in 2021, we had to say specifically that it is wrong for a white officer to publicly murder a black man. And in Chicago, we are still waiting to hear that it is wrong to kill a 13 year old boy with his hands in the air. To truly repair a system, we first need to say where it's broken. Then maybe one day, God willing, people will be able to look back at our new laws with surprise and discomfort and say, they really had to write that all down? These are some undeniably challenging texts and we're in some undeniably challenging times. But remember, Akharimot isn't typically read by itself. It's paired with Kiddoshim, which is also called the Holiness Code. So you can hear it in its name, right? Kiddoshim, like Kadosh, which means holy. The character of God is laying on some new rules as to how we humans, we Jews, can be holy. We're going from laws about what we do with our bodies in Aharimot to laws here about what we do with our power. And good news, these ones probably won't make you squirm. There are things like, don't be biased, don't hold a grudge after an issue has been resolved, love your neighbor as you love yourself, love the stranger as you love yourself, remember that you went through hard times too. Now we're starting to get rules that are worded in the positive, right? The Israelites suddenly have something to aspire to. Throughout this passage, God tells the people again and again, you shall be holy for I am holy, which on the surface level is very sweet that if we follow laws about loving each other, we'll bring about holiness. But something cool that stood out to me is that each time that it's written, the Hebrew is worded a little differently in a different tense. And I promise I'm not usually one to get excited about grammar, but there are lines that say, you shall be holy as in, be holy, do it now, let's go, get on it, like a command. And there are lines that say, you shall be holy, as in, hey, you're gonna be holy real soon. And then there are also lines that say, I, God, am currently in the process of making you holy, like right now. All of these are translated the same way. So what do we do with that? We know this passage comes right after Ahremot as old ways are replaced by newer and better systems. So when we switch between the tenses, to me it suggests that holiness is an ongoing process, just like social reform. We can find holiness in how we use our bodies and we can find holiness in how we use our power, but the more we find it in others, the more enduring it becomes. Our texts don't really give a set time at which our behavior turns holy, similar to how there's not a definitive point when our society becomes just. We strive for these things and we push for these things, but they're not necessarily ever complete 
which on one hand to me is very freeing that there's not finite opportunities for holiness or justice. And on the other hand is kind of scary that there's not a finish line we can run towards. The process of becoming anything is really hard. Like caterpillars literally turn into goo when they're becoming butterflies. So if the bigger things in this world, holiness, justice, are a never-ending process, how do we stop ourselves from just feeling like perpetual goo? There's a lot, right? There's a lot that we still have to become. When I feel overwhelmed by this, by the enormity of the world, I find our rituals really comforting. Throughout painful times in history, our stories have given us meaning. During times of crisis, Shabbat shepherds us from week to week. Our tradition was built for this and it can also push us towards something better. A lot of people ask me why I chose to go to rabbinical school. People used to suggest that I'd apply and I'd always be like, thanks, but no, I'm good. <laughs> I wanted to be a comedian. And so six years ago, I moved here across the country to do that. I taught during the day and I performed and directed at night and it was a lot, a lot of fun. But it also kept me really busy, like too busy for sleep. I've said this before during high holidays of all times, but between the 12 year olds I was teaching and the comedians I was directing, my life was becoming a blur of fart jokes and deep seated insecurities. I do apologize for saying that on Yom Kippur. I'll atone for it later. Um, but the aspects of my work that I found I enjoyed the most, I hardly had time for. I loved sitting with struggling teenagers. I loved building community through stories and music. I loved using comedy to speak truth to power. And everything else got really exhausting. When I felt like I had hit a wall in my life, Mishkan got me through with prayer and protests and onegs and baby namings and hearing the shofar cry out from every balcony at Preston Bradley. The rituals that sustained our people over generations gave me something to hold onto and ground myself with. Throughout chaotic times in my life, Mishkan has seen me and comforted me and trusted me to help lead. I am so grateful to everyone who makes this community what it is, from the davening team to program leaders, to everyone working behind the scenes to make sure that Mishkan holds us all, and Rabbi Dina and Rabbi Jeff and Rabbi Lauren, who have all helped me grow by their example here, and especially Rabbi Lizzie, especially Rabbi Lizzie, who I owe so much to. Thank you, Rabbi Lizzie. Thank you for welcoming me into your community and into your family. You are my rabbi, my mentor, and my Purim costume. And you're such a good sport on Purim. And I think um, maybe the wig helps the most with my impression, but the real reason I can talk like you is because during services and davening team rehearsals, I'm already looking to you for guidance on how to lead, how to preach, and, and how to hold a community in joy, in grief, in prayer. Truly, I am so lucky 
to learn from you and so grateful to have you as a role model. This community, this, this Mishkan is so, so full of love. You can feel it when we're together in person, you can read it in the chat, you can witness it in how people show up for each other. I'm a better person from having been part of all this. I can't wait to come back and hug you all. May we see this holiness in each other and may it lead to systems of enduring holiness for us, for our country and for the world. Shabbat Shalom. Amen. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Thanks, Julie. Thank you. You've been listening to Shabbat Replay on Contact High, a podcast from Mishkan Chicago. If you enjoyed this sermon and want to join us live, tune in to Shabbat services through Facebook most Fridays of the month and through Zoom two Saturday mornings a month. Our schedule of services and programs can be found at mishkanchicago.org events, where there's also a link to donate and support our work. And you can visit us on Facebook or Instagram at Mishkan Chicago. Until then, please feel free to subscribe and leave us a review. As always, we want to hear from you. This episode has been brought to you by me, Zach Weinberg, our editor and producer, Hannah Rehack, our rabbinical team, Rabbis Lizzie Heideman and Dina Cowens, and our director of communications, Ashley Donahue. On behalf of Teen Mishkan, Thanks for tuning in.